Stay tuned for Wine Crush, Northwest Wine Stories Uncorked. Welcome to Wine Crush, where winemakers tell the stories behind the vine. Thanks for joining us here on Portland Radio Project. Today, host Heidi Moore will guide us through the stories of two local winemakers. The first centers on a husband and wife who just fell in love with the people, culture, and the stories of all things wine. The second comes from a winemaker taking over some big shoes, but entering the position with quite the pedigree. Today we have Kelly Robinson from Love Leve in the studio with us. Hello. I, hello. I'm so excited you are here. I'm excited to be here. So you and I have had lunch a couple different times. This is the first time I've actually got to drink your wine. So this is a yeah, this is a big exciting. treat. Yes. But um, I want you to start with your story. Yeah. This, let's start from the beginning and kind of how you and your husband got into this because it it actually came before the two of you. Yeah. So funny story. We actually planted the grapes at our estate in 1999. So when my in-laws were building their house, they had to put a crop on the land in order to get uh, permits for the urban growth boundary. So our winery, our vineyard is in Portland. And so there's a lot of permitting and things that have to happen. So the crop of choice just happened to be grapes. <laughs> so it's been producing wine since 1999. And they've been making just small lots for here and there and getting it out there a little bit. But a couple years ago, we decided to take over the family business and try to expand it and see where we could take it. So so where did you and your husband's wine love come from because he was not necessarily a wine guy and somehow you've changed yeah, his mind. I know. You know, to be honest, I think it was our first trip to Napa. We just chose to go one time and chose to focus on smaller vineyards, um, not necessarily the big ones that everybody goes to, um, but more of the mom and pop small little vineyards. And we're like this community, this culture, just something that we were really interested in and fell in love with and realized we have this. So why aren't we doing anything with it? It seems silly to have the opportunity that not a lot of people have to have a vineyard in your yard and to be able to just capitalize on it and see where we could take it. So he just started drinking it slowly but surely. His family with the vineyard kind of got a little bit more into it too. And every day just kind of trying new things and, you know, going to new regions and new, you know, going down to Oregon as well and trying that. And then slowly but surely he's kind of just fell in love with it too. And I've always been in love with wine. So it was easy for me, <laughs> but fun to now kind of be on the other side, making it now with our winemaker and figuring out what we like and what kind of style we want to do. And yeah, being on the other side is very interesting, very fun. But I can only imagine. I mean, I know how it is with converting my husband from beer to wine. It's been <laughs> yeah. a very painful process. Um, so the fact that he's there, yeah. kudos to you both. And especially, yeah, when you have a vineyard in your backyard or front yard <laughs> yeah. or side yard or whatever, yeah. I mean, gosh, go with it. Um, so let's kind of go back to you and you didn't start in wine. So that's not where your heart and passion started. Yeah. So I graduated from Western Washington University with a degree in communication in 2009. Had a really hard time finding a job. Um, the worst time to graduate in 52 years. Not like I know or anything. But um, so I ended up getting a job as a recruiter at a recruiting firm called Aerotech. Worked there for eight years. And just had a moment one time after we had gone to Napa, we were in the kitchen together 
And we just really had this conversation. It sounds silly, but really, what is the meaning of all of this? You know, you wake up, you get up early, you go work out, you go to work, you work all day, you leave, get home, make dinner, you go to bed, and then you do it all over again. And is that really why you're put here to just kind of the mundane lifestyle of just doing the same thing every single day and where, you know, could we do something different? And then we went to Napa. The combination kind of just drinking wine in our kitchen came up and was like, wait, we have this. <laughs> Let's do something with it. So it was hard to leave that industry. It's all I ever knew. I joke with people all the time. I'm like, I know so much about hiring people and I can help you with your resume. But if you ask me something about wine, I'm still learning. <laughs> so yeah, it's been a crazy transition. But being in sales for eight years and then now being really on the sales front with what I do makes it great to have that experience. It's different than I thought it would be, but it's fun. Um, it's crazy. It's all the things. But yeah, it's worth it for sure. Well, I want to stop you right there. I know we need to talk about some wine, and I want to get back a little bit into the name of your winery and your label, but let's hold on just a second sure. and come back and yeah. talk about that in a few. Support for Wine Crush comes from Country Financial Insurance, offering simple steps today to solve big problems tomorrow. For more, go to countryfinancial.com. We left off talking about how you kind of came to the decision about leaving the corporate world and moved into wine. You also left kind of a fun side hobby, too, that I just was super intrigued about with your your blazer dancing that I thought was super <laughs> cool. So I'm thinking that's where the lipstick comes from. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have um, the best lipstick. I've told you that like three <laughs> or four different times now. I was born wearing red lipstick. Honestly, I danced my whole life ever since I was four. So I always joke with people um, that I've been wearing red lipstick since I was four years old. So it's just part of who I am. <laughs> and then, um, yes, uh, while I was a recruiter, I also was dancing for the Blazers for a few years as well. So to say that I didn't have a life is a little bit of an understatement, I think. Um, I was working full time and Blazers is pretty well full-time as well, and uh, decided to leave that, focus on my career for a while, and then have made the transition now. But now I actually teach spin classes at Burn Cycle. So I always joke with people, I'm like, my life is now, it was crazy and corporate and trying to climb the ladder, and now it's spin and wine. So everything's pretty great, really. Yeah, <laughs> no complain. kidding. Well, it kind of <laughs> goes back to the meaning of the label. So because I yeah. asked, I'm like, what does it mean? Because I've been pronouncing it wrong for about six months. I mean, I've been saying love, live it, which that didn't just it didn't sound very sexy. No, um, you know, and it's really I that we were talking about it at lunch and names are so subjective. So sure. love, live is not how you say it in Danish, um, but that is the way that I want to say it. And it's mine. So I get to do what I want. Right. For sure. It's your rules. <laughs> so, yeah, we came up with the name actually. Coming up with a name is probably the hardest thing I've ever done. Where do you start? Where do you want to go? And my husband just kept coming back to, I really want it to be something about us taking this new adventure and really living life to its fullest. And what is the point of all of this if you're not happy with every single day of your life and all of those things? So we, my husband's family is Danish and I'm Spanish. So I really wanted it to be something 
for my family, but with doing an Oregon wine and having it be a Spanish name might be a little bit confusing. So we decided to do something Danish because there is nothing wine-related Danish that I know of. So yes. Love Leve means live life. Um, and yeah, it's just really our motto is live life, drink all the wine. Wine is meant to be drank. And we friends of mine always buy you know the wine. They're like, I'm going to save it for a special night. I'm like, no, it's meant to be drank. Drink it. You can get more. You know, it's just we want it to be approachable. We want it to be, you know, people that are our age to get into it. We wanted to modernize the labels a little bit. We wanted to just liven it up. And our old labels are black. We wanted to make these ones colorful just to modernize it, make it fun. And I can't emphasize it enough. Just a really approachable, easy drinking wine. You can ask any question you want of me um, about it because I just want everybody to just enjoy it. So, Well, the thing that I loved when we were talking is that not only is today special, but tomorrow is special. So drink the wine. Drink it yeah, every day. Drink, absolutely. Yeah. Don't save it unless I guess it's really fancy schmancy and then maybe <laughs> hold off for the right crowd. But it's also an approachable price point, which mm -hmm. is super important absolutely. for so many of the consumers. So I want to shift gears and pivot to the right a little bit because I have this gorgeous glass of uh, pink wine sitting yeah. next to me. So you brought an entire array. So let's start with the Chardonnay because we've already tried that. Yes. And let's just kind of go through the wines that you're doing. Who's doing your winemaking? Um, just take it away. Yeah. So Michael Lundin is actually doing our winemaking. He's down in McMinnville, has his own label as well, too. And he's absolutely phenomenal, has really built a name for himself in the sparkling Oregon world as well, too. So we actually, funny story about the Chardonnay, we had just decided we were going to do Pinot when we built the vineyard in 1999, but they weren't able to get the certain Pinot grapes that we wanted. And we wanted Dijon 114. Um, it was kind of a different varietal at that time. And it was really hard to get. So they planted the Chardonnay because the time limit for the permit was coming up. So that's the only reason why we actually planted Chardonnay. We have two and a half um, acres of Chardonnay and seven and a half acres of Pinot. So 10 in total. But the Chardonnay is one of my favorites. I call it the only Chardonnay that I really love. I know it's mine and I might be biased, but people are so afraid to drink Chardonnay nowadays because they think of that California yellow, you know, really buttery, oaky Chardonnay that your grandparents were drinking. But the Oregon way is just, I feel really modern and really light and crisp and easy drinking, and I absolutely love it. Rosé is new for us. We just started it. This is our only second edition. The first question I asked Michael when we started working together was, can we make rosé? <laughs> He's like, that's really your first question. <laughs> so yeah, and then I brought some Pinot as well too, but the rosé is very light, French style, really just easy, nice and light, and same with uh, our Pinots as well. Just everything, like I said, really easy drinking. Well, let's just put a little hold pattern right yeah. there, and we'll come back and talk Sounds about a good. little bit more wine, and because that just wasn't enough. <laughs> You're listening to Wine Crush, one of our locally produced podcasts at Portland Radio Project. Get in touch, discover, listen at prp.fm. Mm -hmm. 
We left off talking about wine, and I cut you off on the Pinot because we needed to, you know, we needed a little bit of a pause break there. <laughs> so um, I don't want you to, to leave off your Pinot, and I know you're also doing some other fancy things with Michael as well. So let's kind of circle back to the Pinot a little bit and make sure that we get it some good love. Yeah. So I just poured you guys actually our 2015 Robinson Reserve. So as I said, we took over a couple years ago. So our 2016 is the first year of Love Love A. And then before that, it was Robinson Reserve. So the name change kind of was our identity of us taking over and modernizing it and everything. But yeah, so I mean, Pinot's obviously kind of our bread and butter. We, like I said, have seven and a half acres of it. And that's just something that I think that's kind of just a staple for Oregon. And with our winery being in actual Portland city limits, you know, our climate, I think, probably is even a little bit cooler than down south. So something that we really focus on as well. This year um, was the first year that we actually did a reserve of our Pinot as well. So our 2017, we have a regular Pinot. And then I brought the reserve as well for you guys to try too. So yeah, that is pretty much the, we have the Rosé and the Chardonnay and the Pinot for our wines. And then we have recently started sparkling. To say I'm excited about that is another understatement. With Michael being very just known for that, it was kind of just a no-brainer. We... I am such a bubbly drinker for sure. So really excited about it. We are doing it Method Champenois. So it's going to be a a while. We harvested last year. Um, We kept some Chardonnay from the prior year to mix in with it to just elevate the taste even more. And we have it in bottles right now. So we have about two more years (laughs) until we can enjoy it. I hope that I can wait that long. So I'm really excited about it. But yeah, we'll just kind of see just to see where we go with it. Um, If we want to stick with that for a while, stay with the regular wines, where we kind of want to go, we're just going to kind of explore. And as we're kind of getting started and really getting established, figuring out what's next. Anytime anybody says sparkling, I get a little bit like glistening in my eyes just <laughs> because it's so great. And I have a tendency to hold that for like special occasions and I just need to knock it off. It's just, I need to drink I mean, it. All the time. Yeah. It's always appropriate in yeah. every situation. <laughs> See, I'll just need to take that to heart. Yeah. <laughs> so... Where can we find you? Yeah. Because you don't have a storefront. No, we don't have. uh, We are a residential area. The vineyard is literally in my in-law's front yard. So people ask if they can go visit. And I'm like... I do. Would you want random people at your house all the time? So <laughs> it would be great. Uh, but we are zoned residential. So unfortunately, I don't think a tasting room is in our future in general. And that's okay. We really want to make it just small and I'm fine with distributing it on my own. And it's kind of just the style we want to go with right now. And we'll see what happens in the future. But we are in quite a few restaurants, mainly downtown Portland, a lot of in Beaverton and Hillsborough as well. Um, some big ones. Uh, whenever I'm on the spot, I always forget. But big ones um, in Portland, ring, the ringside. We're in Portland Wine Bar downtown. Um, some places in Hillsborough, ABV Public House and the Wildwood Tap House. And uh, yeah, I'm just trying to think what else. But you can check us out on our website. It's www.lovelevewines.com and that's L-E-V-L-I-V-E-T. And you can check the locate tab and I update it daily with places that we're in now and places um, that you can buy it at, not only at restaurants, but then also bottle shops as well. So yeah. That is so exciting. And thank you, Kelly, so much for- Thank you so much for having me. This is 
been so fun but crazy and it feel I was telling my friends I was I'm going on a wine podcast today. I don't this is my first podcast. So here you I am. did fabulous. <laughs> so thanks. Yeah. Thanks for Thank being you. with us. Thanks for sharing your wine and we will be back in touch soon. Sounds good. Thank you. Yes. After the break, we'll meet our guest who happens to be from a winery that harkens back to one of our very first episodes. We'll tell you how in just a bit. Support for Wine Crush comes from Country Financial Insurance, offering simple steps today to solve big problems tomorrow. For more, go to countryfinancial.com. Welcome back to Wine Crush, the podcast for wine lovers. Let's meet our next guest today, Tress Burns from White Rose Estate. Welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me, Heidi. So I've known you for a while. You have. I know. I've I brought you beer during harvest. You brought me beer. I think we sort of made wine together a we few did. summers ago. Yeah, yeah, we did. It was super fun. So um I didn't really know your background until we sat down at White Rose a couple months ago and you kind of gave me the skinny on your background. So I'm gonna kinda of let you take it from there and okay. and see where yeah. where you've been and where you're going. So I think much like you, I actually grew up on the Oregon coast in a tiny mm-hmm. little town. So I spent actually most of my childhood in Gold Beach, Oregon, which is uh, about 30 miles north of the California border and about six hours from anything. And it's just a tiny town in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Spent most of my life in the Northwest, right? So by the time I graduated high school, ultimately in Newport, Oregon, just up the coast, uh, I'd never been out of the Northwest. I'd never even been on a plane. So I decided it was time to kind of see the world. And so sort of set out to do that over the next few years. I decided to go to school on the East Coast and set foot on a plane for the first time in PDX and took off for Virginia and attended the University of Virginia. Uh, That's quickly, a big jump. That was quite a jump. And I quickly found out that uh, I was sort of smart for Oregon standards and I was Oregon smart. And then I got out into the world and realized there's a lot of smart people out there. And so I felt like I spent a lot of time kind of catching up sort of a, from an education standpoint and culturally, uh, but really enjoyed my time out on the East Coast. And so once I got through that sort of culture shock and fish out of water experience, I really uh, embraced it. Loved Virginia. Found out that I actually loved the East Coast and eventually moved up to New York City after I graduated college and spent uh, about five years in New York. And I think the appeal there was that it was essentially the exact opposite of where I'd grown up, you know, just a metropolis, um, just incredible culture, breakneck pace. I mean, it was a great city to live at 23 years old, you know. No kidding. I just ate it up. You know, I loved that place. So I had a great time there. Found myself working in the tech sort of just by accident. It was uh, in the late 90s and sort of the first tech boom was happening in New York. After five years in New York, I eventually made my way to San Francisco and spent another six years in tech in San Francisco before I made my way back to Oregon. So I spent about 15 years away from Oregon. Uh, I had culture shock leaving and ultimately culture shock coming back to Oregon because it had been so long. But uh, one thing I've really appreciated about Oregon is that time away made me realize how special Oregon really is, right? How wonderful it was to be able to grow up on the coast and and how unique and uh, special Oregon wine country is. It's interesting you say that because I get given a hard time on a regular basis because I did grow up on the coast. I don't get excited about the ocean. Do you get excited about the ocean? <laughs> I do. I miss it quite a bit. Yeah. I miss all those sunsets I grew up with. Uh, it's, you know, I miss the beach. I miss yeah. bonfires on the beach. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll go with you there. But <laughs> the water is a little bit cold. The The sand is just... Yeah. Eh. You don't so, sunbathe. You don't swim. But no. you just sort of enjoy it visually. It's a peaceful place to be. It is. You know, yes. and I, it was funny to come back to Oregon and uh, to start studying wine at Oregon State University. And when I told people where I was from, they would sort of negatively referred to me as a coastie. And uh, 
uh, I hadn't thought of myself as a coastie for such a long time. It was kind of funny to have that identity again. And uh, ultimately, there, it turns out there's a few coasties in the wine industry as well. So uh, Ken Palo over at Walter Scott, uh, Kate Ayers, winemaker now at Penner Ash, uh, Darcy Pendergrass, who spent many years at Amity. So there's a few of us uh, coasties still uh, in the Oregon wine industry. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'll add myself to that group in a roundabout way. <laughs> it's a special group. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so why the wine industry? It's a great question. You know, I spent uh, 10 years in technology, and I was actually very fortunate in the experiences I had in New York and San Francisco. Uh, the last five years, we're at Yahoo, uh, so just down in Sunnyvale, south of San Francisco. And I worked in a team that developed, you know, websites that were used by millions of people. You know, it was a really intense process of spending a year building out these huge websites, seeing 10 to 20 million or more people use these websites, but then they just sort of fizzled into the ether. And I never actually met any of those users. And so it's, it felt sort of intangible, you know, that I wasn't meeting the person that I was actually making the product for. And that it wasn't lasting. Uh, and that ultimately my attraction to wine was to make something tangible that sort of had a legacy, that it lasted. I could hand something to uh, a friend or family member and say, I made this wine and actually enjoy that with them. Or that they might think of me years later when they crack that bottle of wine open. So it, I think there's something tangible and there's a legacy with wine. And that's what attracted me away from technology. Let's pause right there, because I want to go kind of to where your your pedigree, so to speak, with the wine industry okay. has been, but that's going to take a few minutes. Great. So hold right there. Hey, thanks for listening. Why not head over to iTunes and write us a review? We'd love to hear from you, and it helps others find out about our show. For new episodes of Wine Crush and to discover other PRP podcasts, check out the PRP Podcast Co-op at prp.fm. We left off talking about where you've been yeah. and where you are Absolutely. now. And yeah. I mean, I don't know where you're going, but I guess that's to be you know written we'll later, right? Yeah. So let's start kind of where, where the wine road started. Yeah. So uh, by about 2008, sort of had reached a crossroads, you know, about 10 years in tech and sort of thinking about what that next step looked like. Uh, and then, unfortunately, actually, uh, my both my parents were sick, and so I had the opportunity to move back to Oregon to take care of them. And I thought, well, let's take advantage of this uh, opportunity. They happen to live next to Oregon State, and I thought, well, I'll just start to take classes and kind of see if maybe studying wine is something I want to do. So I spent a year as a postback student at Oregon State, and then uh, just sort of brushing up on science and chemistry, and decided to actually do my master's research in the fermentation science program at Oregon State. So I spent two years really getting in depth with Pinot Noir, uh, specifically studying malactic fermentation and what we could do to preserve color in our Pinot Noirs. And it seems sort of quaint now, but 10 to 15 years ago, people actually worried about the color of Oregon Pinot Noir. It was quite pale back then. Essentially, since I've published my research, we've had almost nothing but hot vintages, and you see it in the wines. The wines are much darker colored these days. And uh, so it seems like kind of a quaint notion that we'd have to sort of preserve color in these very pale Pinot Noirs that we used to make. But uh, that's ultimately what my sort of charge was. Uh, Oregon State does a lot of research that benefits the Oregon wine industry. And it was a great way for me to meet uh, winemakers and sort of make connections within the industry. And they feed back a lot of ideas and sort of concerns about wine. And so it's all part of the collaborative industry is that not only we're we doing that together as winemakers and helping each other out, but that Oregon State is also the academic arm that sort of can help out and sort of answer some of these questions as we all work together to make better wines. For sure. Yeah. You don't realize how important those connections are. And as a wine drinker, 
I don't know. I mean, I think it's more of a, a thought now of kind of what the color of the Pinot is. I don't care as long as it tastes good, but some people are a little bit more finicky about yeah, it. Yeah. And I think it was a different time, you know, 15 years ago, we're sort of just getting to the sideways effect, you know, which eventually really helped Oregon, but that uh, people can talk about Pinot Noir, I think better now, you know, we can talk about whole cluster, we can talk about malolactic fermentation, those things, but people understand that Oregon is a world-class wine region, right? And 15 years ago, people knew there might be something interesting here, but they may not have known that the wines that we make are some of the best wines made in the United States and even globally. And that uh, part of that is that behind the scenes, we have worked together to make sure that we are making the best possible wine, right? And I think what I love about the Oregon wine industry is that we do subscribe to that sort of rising tide lifts all boats uh, philosophy. And I hope we can continue that. I think that as we've become sort of known as a premium wine region, of course, you're seeing a lot more investment from out of Oregon, right? Absolutely. California, France, other places. Yeah. It, you know, as we mature, we'll sort of, it'll become more competitive. It's a much more competitive landscape already. I mean, there are hundreds of wine labels, uh, but that we've sort of embraced this idea that let's just get better together. For sure, which is what I absolutely love about the wine industry. You've worked for some pretty great labels. Absolutely. On your way to where you are right now. Yeah. And that was, uh, I think that was important to me, especially coming at this from an academic perspective, was that I wanted to have good mentorship after my uh, research. And so uh, right out of the bat, uh, my first harvest was with Anthony King at uh, Lemelson Vineyards. He asked me to stay. I ended up spending four years there at uh, Lemelson and, and really learning from him. He's an incredible winemaker. He's now the general manager of the Carlton Winemakers Studio, consults on a number of labels and has his own label as well. But after four years, it was kind of time for a, a new experience. And I wanted one more mentorship. And that's when I took the job as associate winemaker under Robert Britton, who's been making wine now for about 44 years. So I have had two incredible mentors in my, in my wine career. For sure. You're now at White Rose. Yes. And that is a fairly new position for you. Absolutely. It's been a little over a year. Yeah, it just started in February. So started oh, at the start so of the year. Oh, so Yeah, absolutely. And so still, you know, everything's still new. It's kind of my first time seeing a lot of these things. Just finished my first harvest there. Uh, you know, we had a very unfortunate uh, circumstance last year at White Rose where Jesus Guillen, who was our winemaker for many years, passed away. And when this opportunity came up, I felt like I was actually ready to sort of make that move to winemaker. And there was a lot about White Rose that appealed to me. Well, let's just put a little bit of a breath of, you know, time right there and let's circle back and talk about your new position at White Rose right. and what you guys are doing for wine because it's yeah. very unique. Yeah. Support for Wine Crush comes from Country Financial Insurance, offering simple steps today to solve big problems tomorrow. For more, go to countryfinancial.com. Let's get into some wine. So Great. we left off with your journey to White Rose and what got you there, but we have not talked a single second about the actual wine you're making, which is beautiful. I'm enjoying this Pinot. And I can't take any credit for yes. these wines. These are all Jesus wines. And again, I think that's one of those things where uh, having known Jesus and, and knowing him as a winemaker, enjoying his openness about process, especially because I think that there's something incredibly difficult about the whole cluster fermentation technique, which we use. Uh is that every time we crack one of these bottles open, we think about Jesus, right? And that's the legacy piece of winemaking. And so I think that that's a real appeal is that I think for years now, and I see it even on social media, is week by week, people are opening wines that Jesus made, remembering Jesus, and he was an incredible person. So it was big shoes to fill, uh, but there was a lot that attracted me to White Rose. I really enjoyed the style that Jesus had spent a lot of time developing there. Jesus was clearly an autodidact. He spent a lot of time reading and really sort of developing the style basically by experimenting in the cellar 
you know, his background was essentially, he was actually computer science in Mexico. Yes, he was. Yeah. Moved up to Oregon, worked in the vineyard, worked his way into the winery, and then worked his way up to winemaker. So he came at it from a practical side. I come at it from an academic side, but that there's a really nice kind of crossover there. And so I have no intention of changing the style of the winery. I'm actually was very attracted to the style of the winery, but that I can think about it through sort of a more scientific perspective and just sort of look at some of the details, but that essentially my job is to carry on Jesus's legacy. So it's a burden in some senses, but that uh, I'm actually very excited to do it. He was an incredible person. And like I said, I always enjoyed his warmth and willingness to sort of open up about process. I think that, uh, again, people that share their techniques that are willing to talk about how they make wine, even the challenges they have when making wine, I think there's a humility in that that really attracts me. And that, again, we need to share these things so that we can make great wine together. Absolutely. I just, that gave me a little bit of a goosebumps and just kind of really made me reminisce to the time that we spent with him here and and whatever. So, um, so you mentioned that you're doing whole cluster. Yes. So not everybody knows what that is. So essentially for us, we're doing a hundred percent whole cluster. So what that means is we clip the cluster off at the vine, we bring it in in 20 pound buckets and we put that cluster intact grapes on stems into the tank. So 20 pounds at a time, we dump each bucket into the tank. That might be two to three tons of grapes. That might be 400 to 600 bucket loads. Wow. But essentially, we just very gently stack those clusters up. And that inclusion of stems brings a lot to the table. So it really changes sort of the profiles of the wine aromatically. You get a lot of sort of spice from the stems, uh, woodiness even. You know, that's essentially a lignified part of the of the plant. And then it changes the uh, structure as well. So there is a type of stem tannin in the stem so that you're getting tannin from your grape skins. You're getting tannin from your grape stems. You're getting a different source of tannin from your barrels as well. And so it's a challenge. Uh, it's a challenge because of those different uh, tannin sources and the way they interact. It's a challenge because it's actually very difficult to do it cleanly. It's, I think it's the most difficult way to make wine because before fermentation starts, your enemy is oxygen. That's essentially what can kind of make things go south. And when you gently stack whole clusters into a tank, you're actually creating all kinds of air pockets all throughout your fermentation. So you have to be smart about it. And Jesus developed a lot of uh, techniques that sort of have allowed that to happen more uh, cleanly. So we use argon. We actually sparge our tanks before we fill. We start to dump the uh, clusters in. And so when they trap air, it's actually trapping an inert gas. And so, again, just sort of developing this process, eliminating cold soak and sort of getting the fermentation going as soon as possible. We've done a lot, and Jesus has done a lot to really create these beautiful, they're ethereal wines. They're very delicate, they're light, and and pretty. Yeah, I don't even know where to go with that. <laughs> I really don't. That was really beautiful. Um, the one thing I've got to say is if you have not been up to White Rose Estate, you have got to go up there. The views are phenomenal. The tasting room is out of the twilight zone a little bit because you walk into a black room. It's dark. There's no windows. It's a stunning place. So we sit at about 900 feet elevation. The White Rose Vineyard itself is only eight acres. So it's a very small parcel. It was planted in 1977. So beautiful old vines at high elevation. What that means is that we don't really accumulate much sugar. So we can kind of let our grapes hang. We can get better flavors, but not at the expense of big alcohol. So even in the these sort of incredibly hot years we've had, like 2014, 15, 16, we're producing wines at 12.9, 13% alcohol. So still very delicate. Our owner, in his journey towards the Oregon wine industry, he started in France, uh, but he wanted a. Uh, he, I think he was turned off by the elitism around wine, and he wanted a comfortable, sort of a cozy place to serve wine. And so the whole idea with White Rose and that coziness and that sort of special feel that you get there is because we want people to feel comfortable when they experience wine. 
It's truly a, a cool place in wine country. So if you've not been there, make sure you make your way out. It's between Dundee and Dayton. And thank you, Tress, thank so you much, much for coming out, spending some time with us, having such a beautiful homage to Jesus. And we'll see you soon. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for the 12th episode of Wine Crush Season 2. Have a great weekend, and we will see you at the bottom of the glass.